Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. You know, this is a great, great Monday. And last Saturday, the International Cooperative Alliance celebrated or have what is called the International Day of Cooperatives. It's every year. It's the first Saturday in July. And this year, uh, the, the International Day of Cooperatives looks at all of the things that are happening in co-ops throughout the world that are bettering and benefiting humankind. Uh, and this year it just happened to fall on the birthday, July the 3rd, of Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart, who wrote the book Collective Carriage, that chronicles the civil rights movement in cooperatives, or those folks in civil rights, black folk, and what we've been doing in co-ops. And she told me on the air once before that she researched this book for 15 years, and when she started, people told her that blacks don't do co-ops. That's a white hippie, yoga-eating phenomenon. White folks do it, and they do it with food co-ops. But her research showed that we ha has shown that we have a tremendous history. Every civil rights leader you can think of in the cooperative movement and it's interesting and fascinating that the International Day of Cooperatives was on her birthday. It's kind of like, let's celebrate co-ops on Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhar's birthday this year. And she's with us this morning to talk about all of the great things that's happening in the U.S. in co-ops. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. And uh yeah, I was quite quite tickled to see about International Day of Cooperatives falling on my birthday. So hopefully everybody celebrated already. You know, it's really interesting, Vernon, that so much has happened in the last year and a half under COVID and all the six crises that you talk about. And I know we'll talk about that more in a minute. But it's just amazing that we've had new worker co-ops, new food co-ops lots of co-op discussions. Everybody now wants to talk about co-ops as an alternative strategy. Co-ops is a strategy to help us build better and renew, right? And I hope we can talk about how co-ops survive crises because we're, we knew it before this horrible crisis, but what's been happening in this recent pandemic has also reinforced everything that the researchers have been finding about how co-ops survive crises and help us to survive crises. So we've got examples of the new and growing movements that are happening here in the U.S. We've got more activity on trying to get better legislation, both state and federal legislation for people. I was a part of a project, a research project at the Center for Cooperatives at the University of Wisconsin on Latinx co-ops, and we're finding out that's a huge, fast-growing 
group, especially worker co-ops and credit unions in the Latinx community. So there's lots happening both in black communities, Latinx communities, immigrant communities in general, and in the U.S. communities in more broadly because both of the need, and this is something I chronicle in my book, that sometimes people start co-ops for survival, but then they rapidly move toward not just survival, but using co-ops for prosperity and for economic independence. And so we can see that happening right before our eyes right now during this period. So it's not only happened historically, but it's also happening present. Exactly. Jessica, before we get into all of the things that's going on today, for those people that have not heard the previous shows, and just everybody out there, you can hear the previous shows with Dr. Nimhart if you go to www.everything.coop and where it says type in, you just type in her name and you'll get the last three or four shows she's been on. And this show will be on in a couple of weeks. It'll be on our webpage. But can you tell people how you got into co-ops? Because it's, it's not a normal thing. I fell into it because I was managing housing co-ops. I did not learn it in all of the education I was able to get. I did not have it in my household. My father worked on a railroad, a, I don't know, blue collar. My my grandfather worked in the mines, and my father worked in the railroad. We were hauling coal in West Virginia. That was the industry, and that was what provided us livelihood. And But what got you into co-ops? Yeah, well, there's two things, or maybe three. The main thing was, and I also am self-taught in cooperative economics, though I have a Ph.D. in economics, I had to teach myself about cooperative economics after I got into the world. But I was working on community economic development strategies for the black community, first with the Children's Defense Fund and then at Morgan State University's Institute for Urban Research. And I was looking for strategies community-based, community-initiated strategies that really promoted family well-being and black community values and that kind of thing. And so the more I learned about community-based economic development, the more I ran into the co-op model. And the funny thing is I had grown up in an intentional community that called itself a co-op. So I sort of knew about co-op housing. I had been a member of co-op grocery stores but I never really put together co-ops as a community development strategy until I was actually forced to think about that um, as part of my job jobs that I was doing. And so once I discovered the model, I got really excited. Then I got discouraged because so few people knew about the model. And as you said, so many black folks that I tried to talk to about it said, we don't do that that I connected with an old classmate of mine who I knew actually who I realized had been studying it a little bit and he got me reading Du Bois on co-ops and then I was able to branch out from there and the more I read, the more fascinated I was about what a great strategy this is toward real urban redevelopment, community redevelopment, community controlled redevelopment and so I started reading more and more about how co-ops can do that. There was a great study it was done in Canada in the 90s that I looked at and referred to a lot. And since then, there's been a lot more research. But I was able to put all that together. But then the question was, well, what's what have black people to do with this? And so that's where I ended up going into the history because so few people thought of co-ops as a development strategy. And then when they thought of it, right, they didn't see black folks in that mix or black communities in that mix. So I was planning just to find a few examples throughout history to show 
that blacks have used it. I thought maybe I would write a book on what I was thinking of as subaltern cooperative economic development. We're looking at all subaltern groups, blacks, Latinx, Asian Americans, Native Americans, to see how they each have used co-ops. But the information from the history of the black co-op movement was so rich, I never actually got out of studying black co-ops. And now I'm telling other people to do the other ethnic groups, the other subaltern groups, because, um, yeah, I mean, I'm still finding out, and this is, what, five years, six years since the book came out, and I'm still finding new things, finding out more information about this long, continuous legacy history of blacks using co-ops, whether it's credit unions, food co-ops, worker co-ops, producer co-ops. We have, we've used every single type in every single industry throughout history. And as I said, first for survival, but then beyond survival, right? For prosperity and for more independence, liberation. So your book has just a wealth of knowledge. Now, because I have had, I grew up in math and chemistry, so words were kind of harsh for me. So I had trouble reading your book, like sitting down and going all the way through and reading it. But how I've been able to use it is a resource manual. So anytime I want to look up anything, whether it's Du Bois or Frederick Douglass or anything, I look, I go and there you got something in there about it, and maybe matter of fact, it may be in several different places, and I get a nice. So, you know, it's, it's sort of I have on my shelf the Bible, the dictionary, and collective courage. Okay, that's all. There's three books. <laughs> okay, all right. So you want to you want to look at you want to go to. It's a phenomenal book to me, and so I'm. I was in two meetings last night, one meeting on a U.N. decade of the Africa diaspora, and I had the book up and I showed it to folks and said, you're going to be on the show today, get this book. In that group, I'm on a subcommittee with John Zipper that's running that's called Cooperative Economics, but it's about for the black community. Uh, matter of fact, John had your name down to ask you to join that, but he hadn't gotten around to it yet. And then I was in a, a group from Los Angeles that's the Crenshaw, downtown Crenshaw. Or have you heard about that problem? I think I have, yeah. Are you, it's 40, yeah I think I know some of the people you're working with. 40 acres, they call it 40 acres and a mall as opposed to 40 acres and right. a mew where they're, they're attempting to buy a 43-acre mall right in the heart of black community in Los Angeles and it's amazing the amount of blatant racism. Just, it's amazing. And I, as I've gotten more and more into it and been in more and more meetings, that this has happened in 2021. It's, it's where every indication is white folks want to keep commercial properties in the hands of white, white developers so they can spread the wealth to engineers and architects and each other the banks and the right. other and they keep that money yeah, rolling leave and, everybody out yeah and it leaves us all out and then they build things that are not for us it's for other white folks so that downtown crenshaw becomes gentrified uh that is rich people come in whether they're white or black or whatever but it's mostly whites come in and displace the folks that are there and the whole idea and clark Arrington is in there, and Ed Hamilton is in there, and they're helping them with on the cooperative side, and I'm helping with the promotion of it as best that I can. They they want to make a 43 acre cooperative village, 
Okay. That's great. It's uh, a fabulous project. Yeah. Affordable housing, and it's going to cost $115 million to purchase, and they, they have about a billion-dollar total renovation package, and they have $60 million in the bank right now. Most developers have nothing when they take over, and they've given this now to three different white developers, okay, and they won't even entertain the black folks' bid. It's amazing and it's sad. Amazing and absolutely sad. So they're putting a lot of force, okay, a lot of political force behind this to get the the owners are pension funds. So it's black and brown people's money, but it's going through Deutsche Bank's brokerage firm. Yeah. So white folks are yeah. controlling it, and they're then only wanting to give it to other white people, and that is so absolutely sad when the folks in the community will create a village for the folks in the community. Uh, right. 1,200 affordable housing. Okay. So, you know, talking about your book in both of these groups, all right, and the work that you've done. And so we're going to have to take our first break already. And we'll be back. I really want to get into when we come back the kinds of things that have been happening, the positive things that have been happening, particularly through this COVID-19 this last year and a half, but any far back as you want to go in the black community. Your book came out in 2014. You've been continually doing research and the kinds of things that you've been finding that's happening in the black community so folks can know no matter if you're in New York or L.A. or anywhere in between, you can start a co-op or look at a co-op for your own survival if there's no jobs or if there's some issue in their community and you end up getting financial wealth and social wealth. And as Dame Pauline Green said when she was the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, co-ops help people to come out of poverty with dignity. So you get financial wealth, social wealth, and dignity. So that's a whole bunch of reasons to start co-ops. But we'll be back to talk more about what are the kinds of things that's happening in the U.S. in our community. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and we have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart as our guest this morning. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we're talking about everything that has been happening in the U.S. in the black community, uh, and that was celebrated. The ICA, International Cooperative Alliance, celebrated on last Saturday, International Day of Cooperatives. So, Dr. Nimhart, what are some of the kinds of things, positive things that's been happening in in the U.S., in the black community and co-ops, particularly in light of the six pandemics that you mentioned, and that's, I talk about COVID-19, which everybody knows is a pandemic. Uh, the second one, and the COVID-19 took the covers off of racism and pre-existing conditions, the things that have been happening in our community with folks. And the second one is racism, COVID-19 showed, and also the lynching of George Floyd on TV. Then there's climate change, which is the third one, and we have a lot of fires, and this is hurricane season. There's getting to be more. They're happening faster. They're lasting longer. The economy is down. It's been down in the black community. There's been higher unemployment. And Dr. Nimhart, I have it, and you're the economist, but I have it when they talk about black unemployment is twice as much as in the white neighborhood, but that's because they only measure the people that are looking for jobs. If you take a look at all of the brothers and sisters that hang around, brothers more on the corners or stop looking. 
if you could measure all of the people that stop looking plus the ones that are looking, I don't know. I On the air when I was talking to a fellow from Kenya, he said that the unemployment in Kenya is 40%. I said, you might be 40% in the black neighborhood if you looked at everybody that's at working age that don't have a job. But the economy's always been bad in, the na- in our neighborhoods because of racism. So we got, that's the four, COVID, racism, climate change, economy. The fifth one is guns, and they seem to be used more this year after COVID. People have been locked up, and they have a lot of mental problems, and they come out with their guns and shoot each other. So that's the fifth one. And the sixth one is the worst. The sixth one I have is stupidity. And those people that say that COVID-19 is a hoax or racism is a hoax or climate change is a hoax, and they say that white folks are better than black folks or anybody else, and they're worried about being extinct and all of that, and then they act out. But that stupidity is the reason I've, that I think that we do not solve these pandemics. So what's been happening in the U.S., in the black community, in in the cooperative world, and particular as it addressed those six pandemics or any one of them you want to talk about? So, yeah, I'm going to start using that six pandemics language. I, I, re- I really think it's helpful for people to see what we're in and what we're struggling with, and that, you know, it continues, you know, but with COVID and that, we've just exacerbated, everything's been exacerbated. And co-ops, I'll still argue it. I've been arguing that co-ops solve most of our economic problems. I'll still argue that they can solve all six of the pandemics Mm. if we use them properly. And I'll try to give some examples of what's been happening more recently um, that helps us to see that. So um, we didn't really put food insecurity in there, but I'll count that as part of the economic problems. But we've got a new Dayton, Ohio has a new Gem City market which is a food co-op, a predominantly black food co-op. So food co-ops are helping to address and actually black community farms and uh, black co-op farms are growing in different areas to help address sort of the food insecurity problems and things like that. Chai Fresh Kitchen in Chicago is also a food, it's a food prep worker-owned co-op owned predominantly by uh, women of color who uh, were previously incarcerated. Um, And so that's another one where it's combining things, right? What happens with previous incarcerated people who can't get good jobs and good work combined with, again, making sure to have good food prep, uh, healthy food prep processes. It's being work. It's a worker-owned co-op. Yes. Want to say no, I just I just get so excited about that group. I mean, they've been on the air. They, we've 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 I've interviewed right, right. them. Heard, so I don't and, have to say too much. Oh, no, no, for the people out here, you might. For the people out there, you might. But it's it's so exciting that you have folks returning, previously incarcerated, and most of the time they can't get jobs. Now they're creating their own job. Okay, yeah. and they started it and in the, during COVID. That's what yeah, I was getting ready to say. During COVID, which is just incredible and solving the food service issues for people who couldn't get out of the house, who can't get good, and this is healthy, good, healthy food that they're creating. So it's really an incredible model and owned worker owners, right? So it's not just the co-op, but it's worker owners. So we know their workers are in control of their own company, right, able to, you know, get both good jobs but also earn uh, wealth, right, earn assets, own an asset, that kind of thing. So, again, combining several of these issues that we've been talking about, the ways that co-ops can do that and different kinds of co-op ownership, 
there's uh, but, but before you before you move on if i could yes. this yes. worker owned cooperative so i have it that if an employee if the employees own the business own and control it then it's a worker cooperative and therefore any business with shot fresh or any business you can think of could be a worker cooperative and yes. the value that you're talking about of a worker cooperative, this is why it's so critical, is that the, the workers have a voice. They have the control over the business. They can be heard. They can create the policies. But also, this is where the dignity comes from. They have voice. Also, they decide how much they get paid. Right. They look at the P&L, they look at the income coming in, they look at all of the expenses coming in, and they say, we can pay ourselves uh, not 15 bucks an hour, we want to pay ourselves 20 bucks an hour, 25 bucks an hour, whatever we can afford. But then there's profit. Well, hopefully there's profit. And John Ferrer seemed like they may be profitable in their first year, which is almost unheard of for a business, a startup. Right. They can decide, the workers now, can decide what they do with that profit. How much of it they can take home in dividends, how much they can take in the business for growth, how much they can give to yep. the society to help the community out. They yeah. decide. This is what I love about co-ops. Right, it's fascinating. Okay, I'm keep keep going. Keep going. Yeah. No, no, I'm glad you stopped me because that you know, the worker cops in particular are one of my favorite I was gonna say genres. I used to be in literature. But <laughs> one of my favorite uh I, forms. I call right. them sectors. Well, I have four sectors, sectors and right. that's one of them. Um, for all for all the reasons you said, and right, so it's the combination of you own it and you control it, right? So it's controlled democratically, like all co-ops. It's owned by the employees. So as you say, they get to do all the have all the say, right? They also get to right share not just in the profits and the decisions, but share any risks, right? They get to, you know, two heads are better than one. So it's social entrepreneurship where multiple people are solving problems and figuring this out and working together. They get leadership development, right? Social capital and leadership development by being involved in such a way. And then you also mentioned the education, right? They actually get skills, right? They learn how to read a profit and loss statement. They know, learn how to budget, how to make budget decisions for a business, right? How to do business planning. So there's all kinds of education and skill development. In addition to, as we said, they just, you know, they get a better job and they get control over a better job. And then most worker co-ops end up giving back to the communities in a variety of ways. Um, because that's part of the whole ethos, part of the values and principles of being a cooperative. So we actually see there's more and more uh, people of color involved in worker cooperatives, and especially worker cooperatives are one of the fastest growing sectors in the U.S., especially Latinx and immigrants. But I also was just on a panel with um, the executive director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, who says even some of the established co-ops are being, now the leadership is being uh, taken over by people of color. Is that Esteban? More. Esteban Kelly? Yes, you wanna... Esteban Kelly, yeah. So so we actually see not just that new sectors are growing with people of color, um, but that actually people of color, uh, even indigenous black folks, are starting to even take leadership in the co-ops that they are in, even if they're not the majority. So it's interesting things happening. There's still more room right, especially for indigenous blacks to embrace the model, but it's, it's going great. The other thing I just wanted to quickly say about what new things are happening, there's a group in Richmond, California, a black group that's doing co-op development and starting a co-op loan fund that's part of the New Seed Commons 
non-extractive loan funds. That's been growing. We can talk about non-extractive finance. And then I'm really happy to um, announce that the partnership funds have started a collective courage fund to encourage black-owned co-op development processes. Uh, I know I've got three minutes left. I just want to read what they say. As part of our commitment, we're supporting a new program, the Collective Courage Fund, supporting experiments and explorations into building black political power with cooperatives. So how can somebody find out? How can I find out about that and other people find out about the Collective Courage Fund? I love it. It's... uh, the partnership funds, so partnershipfunds.org, have established that particular fund. So you can go to partnershipfund.org and look yeah, up collective care. Partnership funds with an S, funds, partnershipfunds.org. And the organization is called The Partnership Funds. Okay. And there is so, yes, and they did some money. it after my book, which I was very thrilled about. Thank you very much. We'll take our second break. We'll be right back, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We're talking to Dr. Jessica Gordon-Imhard. We're talking about the International Day of Cooperatives and the kinds of things that are going on in the U.S. that co-ops are doing to better our community. This program is brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities. And it's unfortunately, but a lot of blacks, browns, and native folks are in low-income communities. And they do this by providing innovative financial and related services. And NCB, uh, Dr. Nimhart, has been a great partner. They've not only provided financial support for this program for the last seven and a half years, but also just a lot of ideas on how to get to people to be on the show and what's going on in the cooperative world. And so I'm really uh, thankful for them and thankful for you to come on and tell us what's going on. So what I have is from what you've said so far, is anybody out there listening, if you've lost your job, no matter what it is, you've been in the restaurant business, you've uh, been driving taxis, you've been in healthcare, maid service, you're an artist and you can't get gigs, it's kind of like join together, collaborative with some of your folks, and don't go around asking for jobs. Make your own job. Make your own jobs. Create your own co-op, and then you can share in the decision-making. You can learn how to solve problems together. That's the fifth principle is knowledge, information, and training, and Dr. Nimhard is a professor, and she's an educator, and I've done that for 11 years in my career. And want to get back, but this time I want to teach about co-ops. Uh, so if you know of anybody that needs a college professor on co-ops, let me know. Okay. But this education, training, and information was the first reason I like co-ops. Second reason I like co-ops is first principle is open for everybody. It doesn't make any difference about your gender, your race, your political affiliation, your religion, your age. It just doesn't make any difference. And it's one member, one vote, democratically controlled. So start your own. Go to the partnershipfunds.org dot 
org to see about the collective courage to see about getting funding or if it's you can go to cdf.coop uh, cooperativedevelopmentfund.coop and they have some technical support and some monies to help you get started but there's a lot of places to get help to get start your co-op and get the training that you need and so you can start your co-op make your job make jobs and take more money home have a bigger say in your life. So, Dr. Right, Nimhart. Yeah. When people ask me about how to start, I talk about one of the really exciting findings from my research, which is that almost every black co-op I found out anything about how they started, started with a study group, right? So that's the first easiest thing you can do. You can do it by Zoom, to even during COVID, if you're still not going out or getting out much, right? And the study group can do a couple of things. It can be like a book club where you read different books and articles, but also a lot of the study groups started with people just coming together to talk about what the problems were, especially what their economic problems were, and then to study economic solutions, which brought them to studying co-ops, and then they would study co-ops together in a variety of ways. And some of the strongest, longest-lasting co-ops had the strongest education programs and continuous education programs. So it's really simple. Even before you need to even look for money, I would say, you know, find like-minded people who are interested, have same interests or needs, and start working with them, right? You mentioned driving a taxi. Well, New York City has now a, a taxi collective that are using a new platform, right? Platform, they're creating their own sort of alternative to Uber and Lyft, right? By creating a taxi platform for any taxi driver, that's a co-op, right? So they're using um, what they call platform co-ops, right? So cooperative uh, digital platforms to run the service that are all owned by these individual cabbies who also can be part of any other, you know, they can work in any other cab company. They don't have to just work exclusively for their co-op. Um, and they're starting to figure out a way to really make sure that cab drivers get uh more control over their work and their um, and their income, right? So uh, they also just started came together to talk about right what do they do about Uber and Lyft and all those other things and how do they compete and how do they make their lives better and their their business stronger and they realized this platform co-op would work for them and they've been putting that together. I think they just launched it recently. But anyway, it's another example of how you come together first and then figure it out. I did also want to mention there's another, there are other, there's a bunch of loan funds out there now. The one that I know the best right now is Seed Commons, which is a set, a, a set of peer co-op, local co-op lending organizations throughout the U.S. Um, that try to do what we call non-extractive lending, meaning you apply for a loan, uh, you get technical assistance with how to make sure your business plan is working and all that kind of stuff, and then you only pay back once you're successful so that the loan payback is not taking away or extracting from you. There's not, um, there's not interest. There may be some processing fees with the loan, but there's not interest building up. And once you're successful, once you have revenue, extra revenues, then you start to pay back the loan so the loan can be used for somebody else. So it's another interesting model. More and more of the loan funds are starting to use a model like that. But again, that combination with first studying and learning together and then 
um, studying about your different loan opportunities makes a lot of sense. Fascinating. Fascinating. So you were talking about the different groups, and you mentioned the food co-op in Dayton. I know I've had on air there was a food co-op being developed in Flint, Michigan, another one in Detroit. These were black folks starting food co-ops. There was a group in southeast D.C. Ward 8 was uh, attempting to start one. The study, a lot of time goes into the study. And I also read in your book that uh, co-ops are more successful than capitalistic organizations that start up. Yeah, I haven't personally done the research, but I was uh, quoting some other research that's done in a variety of places, and now there's actually newer research about the same thing. But basically, business ownership, especially small business ownership, is very precarious. So most small businesses don't even last in the first year, and then only about 10 or so last after five years. But co-ops, because of all the things we're talking about, right, because of all the deliberate study and learning and supports because of the supports of community, because of the combined, right, the democratic voice and combined skills and everything, actually um, have much higher rates. I think it's something like 70 or 80 percent last the first year and 90 percent after five years. No, that's not right, right? The numbers don't work. For right now, it's, it's a high percentage. Overwhelmingly, right, high percentage and higher than corporate and especially small business, right? So that's the other thing. It's safer in some ways to, to be part of a co-op or to start a co-op. Also, we know now we're also promoting conversions, right? Workers who are already in a business, especially if you've got an owner or owners who want to retire or whatever, um, it's also happened during COVID that people were realizing that businesses were having trouble staying afloat. If they convert to worker co-ops or worker ownership, they have a better chance of surviving, again, for all the things we talked about. But I can talk more about why co-ops are more flexible to survive crises. And so we're actually seeing conversions of small business with single proprietor and partnership small businesses selling to their employees who obviously have been running the businesses and know the business. And so that's another way to democratize wealth, right? and also to keep um, small businesses afloat. So if you find that your company, whether it's a restaurant or construction company or any other kind of business out there, manufacturing, that the owner wants to sell because he may be my age, I'm 74, or at least will be in October, or 65 or 62, or they might be 55 and want to retire, then they make an option that they could start, they could sell to the employees. Through a co-op, co-op gives you something that ESOPs don't give you. Co-ops give you control. ESOPs don't necessarily give you control. So co-ops is a better way, and you can also the, that found that person that's selling can get economic, uh, tax benefits for selling to the employees. Because there's a lot of good reasons to sell to the employees, let alone the reasons that Dr. Nimhart just talked about. You have a much higher chance of being successful. Because you study and you learn. But there's another reason that I like co-ops. You learn how to solve when you have different disagreements. Okay. You don't have to go to the okay corral. Okay. That was what was done in the Wild West. You don't have to pull out your guns and start shooting. And that's one of the pandemics. Some people do that. But you learn how to solve problems together, how you communicate together. That's part of the conversation. And when I was managing the housing co-ops, it was amazing to me to watch people solve problems together. 
just absolutely, totally amazing. So that's one of the reasons that they are successful. You, they make the decisions, they make them together, and where two or more are together, the Bible says God is needed. Or No, God is there also. And I say because he's needed, because there's going to be conflict. <laughs> okay. So in a co-op, you learn how to solve those problems and read the financial statements and make decisions And some of the most successful co-ops have been successful because they paid attention to making sure people learn how to make decisions together, how to do conflict resolution, conflict transformation. Um, And we're even seeing it. I've started studying worker co-ops in prisons uh, owned by incarcerated workers themselves. And they even, there's testimony now about how that learning how to work together, solve problems together, trust each other, um, has made a huge difference in humanizing their experience in prison in addition to helping them to actually earn real wages and not slave wages and control their own businesses, that kind of thing. So we see it even in the most marginalized people in cages, right, are seeing how... I don't know. I was about to say miraculous. I guess it's kind of miraculous. It is miraculous. Um, no, it is. This, it's miracle-making. Building yeah. these kinds of both economic and social relationships that get built and make your business stronger at the same time that make you a better human being and you a stronger person. And we see it, you know, whether it's in sex work, whether it's in prison, whether it's in a housing co-op, whether it's in uh, a factory, right? We get those almost the same results, at least the co-ops that are are strong enough to survive, we see all those same results. And that's part of how you help them to survive and to be strong. So I could spend the next hour talking to you about these co-ops that are in prisons. The only one I knew about was in Italy, a bakery. Uh, do you know of any others that are in prisons? Right. Well, Italy has a bunch of them. Sweden, Puerto Rico has uh, had four before COVID. I'm not sure how they're faring now. Uruguay has been using this model, Brazil, Ethiopia has a fabulous model that I actually have been trying to get to go visit. I want to go. Now is not the time. But I want to go. I know, right? We should, let's plan a, a tour. But um, the Mancale prisons, they actually train uh, some of the corrections officers to be co-op developers so that they can help the prisoners to develop their own co-ops. Wow. They also have an on-site microfinance program that provides the finance for the worker, for the incarcerated worker co-ops. And it's part of their whole rehabilitation support program, uh, especially for women and youth who are in those prisons. And yeah, it just sounds incredibly fascinating what they've been able to pull together. But that combination, right, of having the microfinance right there on site with the corrections officers actually teaching cooperation instead of doing all the other punishment stuff they usually do. So when Joe Biden talks about build back better, it'd be nice if we can get this so that the next time we talk about the International Day of Cooperatives that we could say this is what's happening in our prisons. So when people come out, they already have a family. They have a business that they own and to be a part of. They are making money. Therefore, the incarceration rate was like 3% in Italy in this bakery. So, yeah, that's a lot. We're going to take our final final break already. We'll be right back to talk more to Dr. Menemhard. Please don't touch that down. (music) 
Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart as our guest today. We just left talking about um, co-ops and prisons, and it will be great, Dr. Nimhart, if one time not in the near future, hopefully, we can talk about that's what's going on in our prison systems, that the, the guards are helping the inmates to start co-ops and train them about co-ops, and they create businesses in the prisons where they can make a living wage in the prison as opposed to 25 bucks an hour or some cigarettes or something. Uh, that would be awesome. And they come back out, they have a lot less chance of going back in because most of those prisoners are black folk, okay? They're more, much more likely in the, in the injustice system to be in prison and have longer terms than their white counterparts. So, yes, it would help us a lot. It'd be nice if we could come back and talk about that, but I'd like for you to talk about what has been happening, if you got some more examples of what's been going on in cooperative world. So I guess we're running out of time. So I guess the other thing I want to make sure we talked about today is we do have racial justice reckoning going on in the co-op movement. And this is less about what the black community is doing and more about the white community's interest in how to promote racial justice. But even some of the some black groups have been asking me to talk about that as well. And what I've you know, what's been happening is one, I've been on a lot of panels, right? National and local organizations have been asking me on panels about how do we address racial equity and racial justice in co-ops. And I also see it, right, see that it's happening, that, that groups are naturally realizing, right, that they can't go on. And so that I think the three things that are happening is, one, the un- actual really finally an understanding about white privilege whiteness and institutional racism, right? And how it even shows up in what we think of as progressive liberal organizations like co-ops and that you can be a co-op member and still engage in institutional racism or allow it to continue to happen and be involved in racial microaggressions, et cetera, because we live in, you know, an anti-black, racist, gendered society, right? Our co-ops don't, we're not off the hook. We don't we're not ducks, that stuff doesn't roll off our backs, it actually is still ingrained in our systems. And so people are now trying to pay attention to that. And so I've been also talking about this combination, right? We can't really achieve racial justice without economic justice and economic democracy, as you and I have been talking all day or all morning. But we also can't achieve economic democracy without some racial justice and racial equity, right? So those of us who are already involved in economic democracy and cooperatives and solidarity economics have to pay a lot more attention, right, to the ways that we're still reproducing the anti-black racist society that we live in. And people are starting to pay more attention to that. We've got more people asking what to do, how to get trained, what to look for. And so that's, I think, I feel like that's been a growing movement within the co-op movement itself here in the U.S. is, you know, really trying to address. And actually, I I talked to two groups in uh, Canada also. So Canadians are trying to address this better. The U.S. is trying to address this better and having some really frank, honest conversations, right? What does whiteness really mean and how does white privilege, even when you don't think you're asserting it, how does it show up and what can we do about it? And... Again, my main message is, one, to recognize, right, that invisible 
backpack of white privilege that people carry, right? Recognize those unintended microaggressions, right? And then understand institutional racism and its impact and outcomes. And actively, right, we have to be very deliberate about dismantling, addressing and dismantling those inequalities and unequal outcomes regardless of intention, right? So I often tell people, right, intention is not enough, diversity is not enough, even inclusion is not enough, right? We have to be very deliberate about dismantling the disparities and the inequalities and very deliberate about what kind of policies we put in to make sure we don't reproduce those things and continue to reproduce them. And how, how have those conversations been going in terms of implementing Actually, something? Yeah, well, that's the next question, right? I keep saying it has to end with action, right? Talk isn't enough. But I honestly don't have the energy to monitor the actions. <laughs> so I don't know what we do about that part, but at least the message seems to be getting to people and people seem to be trying to figure out, right? So there's committees committed to putting new policies in place and revising their policies and there's people who keep asking me to talk about it, right, that kind of thing. So I do think some progress is being made, but I honestly don't know what we do about monitoring whether things end in action, because that's exhausting. And I actually resent it that I should have to be the one to keep up or to monitor or to follow through, you know, right. And so I don't know how to, you know, how to figure out after I've done my part of educating, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how we get to the monitoring and action part. A quick thought is that you can say to people, before I come to talk to you about this, you have to promise to let, measure it and let me know how it goes. Mm -hmm. if, if you don't yeah. give me the feedback, I don't know. Or even promise to have done something, right? Or even yeah. promise to have done something before I even come, right? Tell mm -hmm. me what that is they've done. And some yeah. of them have done stuff before they have me come. But you're right. That's Those two things, I think, would help a lot. So, now, right, what... What are they going to measure and show me that they're measuring it and maybe even have done something, proven themselves to be uh, dedicated to this by some actions they've already taken? Because too often it is whatever the norm, whatever is going on, whatever is politically correct, folks want to do until it goes away. Right. And then it's back right. to normal. Um, right. So is this in the co-op world that you're talking or is this in yeah. general? So it's a co-op world of how folks in the co-op. Yeah, well, I mean, it's general in the rest of my life, but it's definitely in the co-op world specifically. So do you feel... are asking me. Do you feel, is there any sense that folks in the co-op world, those organizations in the cooperative world, are more inclined to want to bring justice in this, in, in this racial scene than the general population? They are. I think they are. I think there's two reasons. One, you know, obviously people do what's pragmatic, right? And they're really finding that their co-ops, whether they're co-op developers or in a co-op itself or the co-op sector, is stronger if they can get a handle on this racial justice. Partly because so many of the new cooperators in most of the sectors are people of color, right? And I think also the co-op people are very much aware that the U.S. demographics are changing, right? In another 10, 20, 30 years, people of color are going to be the majority. So they've got to figure out how to work with us, how to incorporate us, etc. So I think there is a genuine recognition and interest and concern. But definitely, I think 
also because they see the growth of co-ops really depends on having people of color who feel comfortable and who are, you know, who assert power. So they're willing to start to do some of that power analysis, as I said, mostly for pragmatic reasons, but I think also some people, you know, for moral, ethical reasons. So I like the ethical values of co-ops, of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. I, re- I like to say caring for one another, the golden rule. Yeah. And so if, you, if you're if you operating in that and those values, then yes, it's it's automatic. Particularly, I couldn't talk to some people that you were racist because they weren't the out-and-out racism that I saw in growing up in West Virginia. They wouldn't come out and call you the N-word and all of that. But their results of their action were still bad for black folk. Exactly. And too often, and when I got the language of, of this, this white privilege, uh, I had the, the language of institutional racism, but I couldn't talk to some folks because they're very, very nice people. Just right. their actions ended Absolutely. up hurting us. Absolutely. And that's that privilege bag. They would come out of that and they would do things that had similar, if not the same results, as somebody saying, I'm going to, I'm going to get you black boy i'm going to get you all right we have very little time left so what's happening in the future what do you want to leave people with what what's going on in <laughs> both your world or in the co-op world you well, want to leave people? I, you know the the future is co-ops and i've been adding you know co-ops and the solidarity economy right so you know it doesn't just have to be official co-ops but solidarity economics i think it is our future we've definitely seen right a growth in mutual aid especially since the six pandemics have attacked us. Um, people using mutual aid. Mutual aid has always been a precursor to formal cooperative ownership and cooperative, right? So I think the future is really that we're going to solve our human problems and address all these crises with mutual aid, cooperation, solidarity economics. I'm excited to see it. You can even see like Puerto Rico is rebuilding its electrical system with electrical co-ops. And so, as we talked about with um, incarcerated worker co-ops, I really think that's that's the future. Well, the other thing I had some folks on the show from Puerto Rico that, I don't know, for the last 60 years, they've had co-ops in schools. And at that time, this was before COVID, they had 54 co-ops in elementary school to college, all the way through in different schools and their training. And I know with the folks in the housing co-ops on college campuses in the U.S., I've had a couple of people on the show that said they learn more in their co-op how to be successful yes. and work with people than they did in the classroom. And so it's phenomenal. Yep. Yep. Anything else you want to leave people with? You, you got that it's going to be the answer to these six pandemics. It's going to be the answer, yeah. I don't know what else to say except we've got to train, right? We've got to be open to it. We've got to train ourselves. And make sure it's not just the answer, but it's a strong, right, that we're strong and deliberate about all the ways that we pra- learn and practice uh, cooperation and solidarity economics. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. Please live cooperatively, and we will see you next Thursday. And Jessica and I are going to Ethiopia with a group of folks. You look at this. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great day.